Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Hello. Welcome to the film room. Uh, this year is the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, and like every other show, we wanted to do something that would pay homage to that anniversary. 50 years is a long time for a franchise to last into history, and we could easily sit down and do the six uh, original series movies. We're not going to do that today. Not today. Not today. We have plans to get to that later in the year. Towards the end of the year, we are going to sit down and we are going to cover the six original series films which I think comprise one of the one of the better film franchises in cinema history, really, for what's worth, in terms of overall cohesiveness. Um, I think the central trilogy at the core of it, 2, 3, and 4, stands up. When I say it's one of the better franchises, I'm not talking about, say, I'm talking about the second tier of franchises. Like, not, not your Star Wars, not your Lord of the Rings, but I don't yeah. know that, but some of the movies in, in the original six movies are... They're not far off. I would say it probably has the track record of a horror franchise. Now, I don't I don't even think that's fair. I mean, if yeah. it has the track record of a horror franchise, it's one of the better ones, you know? Um, <laughs> like, I would say it would have True. the tra- track record of maybe, say, a... Um, I'm trying to think of what would even be a good one. I mean, it's a stronger track record than Nightmare on Elm Street, I'll say that. And it's sure as hell a stronger track record than, say, Friday the 13th or Halloween. Mm-hmm. You know, but the original series films are all... They're all at least to some degree worth seeing, even the quote-unquote bad ones. The Final Frontier is a fascinating film if you understand what happened on the making of it. Uh, That was a movie that, for the record, they had really ambitious plans for it. The original idea for what that movie was going to be about could have been, potentially, the best Star Trek film yet. They didn't get to go there. Uh, The original idea, by the way, was that they were going to get to the entity at the center of the galaxy... And it was Satan. Oh. Oh. Yeah, that's the original idea. Wow. That would have been ballsy. <laughs> that would have been ballsy, and it would have been very entertaining. Uh, the original ideas for that movie are, uh, they're outlined in uh, William Shatner's uh, Star Trek movie Memories. They are fantastic. They are well worth hearing. Watching the movie, you can kind of see what they were going for. But, I mean, those, as I said, I certainly think The Wrath of Khan, it goes without saying, holds up as well as any film from its era. Um, it, yeah. it, it is on the... I, I, I think of The Wrath of Khan in the same breath that I think of The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, it's... Uh, you know the story behind the making of that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that was outlined at depth in the book, too, that basically they were caught in a bad situation. They, uh, Star Wars came out, they were like, okay, we, obviously there's money still in this, but it was handed off to the TV division and they were t- told to just kind of slam it out. Uh, then when Nicholas Meyer was hired, um, he basically wrote it so quickly that uh, he didn't even get credit on the script. Hmm. Yeah, there's all kinds of met. That was kind of a messy production, but it was super. Yeah. I mean, the the final product, like even though that movie was made on virtually no money whatsoever, it looks mm-hmm. so good. I actually saw it theatrically a few years ago, and it still yeah. looks great. If anything, the low budget forced it into an intimate 
look and feel, and that intimacy looks so good in theaters. Nice. So with all that set up about our thoughts on the original series movies, we're not discussing them today. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> Nor are we discussing the reboots. What are we what we are going to be discussing today is another anniversary related to Trek. That being the 20th anniversary of Star Trek First Contact. This was a cast that I wanted to get to, and we realized, hey, we have the opportunity to do this while we're doing the banked casts. So, what we're going to look at today is the Star Trek The Next Generation films. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to be looking at the four Star Trek The Next Generation films. And I want to look at these movies for a very specific reason. Star Trek The Next Generation is such a beloved series on television. It's still quoted, it's still referenced, it's still brought up, it still resonates in the media. People still talk about it. Uh, for a lot of people, my, gener- my generation, pun intended, it is our Star Trek. Though, I would yeah. actually probably rank it third of the series. Uh, no, I wouldn't. I-, I would rank it probably third of the, three, of the five series. Um, I, prefer, uh, I prefer the original series in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, I think that... My personal generation of Star Trek is probably Voyager, because that's the one I watched the most. Voyager gets a bad rap. Voyager really gets a bad rap. It has a, lo- it has a lot of good going for it. Um, yeah, it's so good, though. Like, it's so, like, it's, I just, like, every time it was on, I would just stop what I was doing and watch it. Like, it was in uh, uh, syndication at one of the local stations. Voyager was very good. It It had... Uh, first of all, it had an excellent cast, uh, by and large. Um, Kate Mulgrew was an excellent lead for the show. Uh, I'm glad that she's uh, gone on to success with uh, Orange is the New Black, where she really does steal every scene she's in on that not very good show, but she's great on it. She's awesome. Uh, the show benefited from um, Joe Dante favorite uh, Robert Picardo uh, getting to play the uh, doctor on the show, a hologram. And then the show ran into one of its most interesting offbeat uh, uh, positives. They were ordered around season three or four that they had to put in a character to draw eye candy. And that's how Seven of Nine was created. I did not know that she came in that late. It was not, yeah, it was not early in the show. It was, it was about midway through and she was basically put in to spike ratings. And I feel like the show's writers as a middle finger to this, horrible sexist (laughs) demand they made her a borg well a they made her a borg b they made her the one of the most interesting characters on the show they did if not the most interesting character they gave her the best writing they gave her the Mm -hmm. best character arc and they had the advantage Mm -hmm. that jerry ryan was an excellent actress who did a superb job in the role and oh yeah 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 really did a very good job she really carried uh it could have been such an irritating stereotype of a character. Yeah, I mean, I've always liked Voyager. I mean, I've always thought the the cast was interesting. It was fun. The writing was at times a little bit muddled, but it had some of the better arcs, and it had some of the better ideas. Uh, yeah, Voyager gets a bad rap. As I said, Deep Space Nine and the original series, probably Deep Space Nine gets my pick for my favorite series just because, A, the cast was all excellent. I mean, there really wasn't a weak link in that entire cast. B, this was the one of the first sci-fi shows to really do the season-long arcs and make them work. Like, there, re- there really was... It wasn't very much a just a show of the week. Uh, when they went to the Dominion War story, it was one of the best. 
one of the best really of, of sci-fi of that era. Uh, I'll say this, their mythology was a hell of a lot more cohesive than the X-Files. <laughs> Gotta give them credit. Um, I, and the original series is also iconic. The original series, if it had just been the first two seasons, I think it would be an easier call for me as to that being the best of the two series. But the original series has that third season, and that third season is just as bad as people talk about it as. Oh, really? Yeah, I did not know that. Have you have you not ever really watched much of the, the much of the third season is just almost unwatchable. Really, they didn't have much budget. The story ideas they came up with were silly. There's some pretty bad episodes. Is that the is that the season with uh, there's one that has like a giant hand? I it might be. I think it is. That's probably the silliest one I uh, I saw of the original. Well, there's the one there's the uh, one where they take Spock where the aliens take Spock's brain out of his uh, head and carry it around. And Spock has to guide them to putting it back in. Oh, okay, that's weird. And then it ends on just a spectacularly uncomfortable last episode. Uh, no wonder why they had to have six movies to compensate. Yeah, no wonder why they did. And again, no wonder why the six movies are as good as they are. I mean, it's it's almost like they were like, okay, we've got to make it up to fans for how bad that last season is. So here, here's what amounts to a, a season's worth of uh, better episodes. Um, you know, there's also Enterprise. Next. Uh, that's all I want to say about Enterprises. There's Enterprise. It exists. Oh, I heard that was better than, you know, people gave it credit for, but... Not much. I... It's not. It's 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 an attempt at going back to some of the fun of the original series, but it kind of misses. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, I could also point out that there's also a uh, another Trek that nobody uh, that doesn't get talked about because it only existed in book form. But there was uh, New Frontier, a uh, series of books that dealt with a crew of most of which had shown up as supporting characters in other series or in uh, and uh, all assembled for that one. Uh, that's very good. That's uh, very good. Those were all written by Peter David, who is, in terms of Star Trek novels, Peter David was the guy that came in and always batted cleanup. He was always the guy that you could count on to really deliver something strong. Uh, I'm going to be mentioning David a lot throughout the next cast. I'm just going to warn people. His name's going to come up a lot. David, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, one of the great tie-in writers of all time, also the single greatest Hulk writer of all time, hands down. By the way, he did write the novelization for both Hulk movies, so that's kind of cool. Oh, and his novelization of the 2003 Hulk movie is so much better than the actual movie. It's sad. I, it has to be, though. It has to be. It has to be. Well, he made it cohesive. He knew he knew how to make it feel like a Hulk story, because he was good at it. Um, that There's there's so much I could say, but uh, I have an entry up on comic book novels. Uh, Y'all can look for that. It's up on the lobby, but... Uh, so let's get, but let's get to the next generation. So I'm gonna ask you, what are your thoughts on the next generation? Um, the next generation, I don't have a strong attachment to it. I think it has some good characters. Like I really enjoy Data mm-hmm. as a character. He's great. Uh, yeah, Worf is fun. We've already uh, praised Spiner, of course, and uh, on. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And I like Picard. He's also a great character. Yeah, over the the infamous Kirk over Picard. I would pick Picard. I've had... I'm of mixed opinions about that. Again, I think it's because I think... It's because I think Kirk had the more iconic show, but he Mm -hmm. also wasn't exactly the guy that you wanted leading you into battle because he would very likely try to pick a fight with the biggest guy he could. Uh, That's always been my (laughs) issue. 
I kind of have about the same, similar feelings. Um, I feel like my big issue with the show, because I mean, I also think, I think Riker and Worf, or not not Riker, because I have issues with Riker. I think Worf and uh, Picard are strong, are awesome characters. I think Data is an awesome character, which is going to be, which is why I'm going to probably have so much to say when we get into the movies. Uh, I think Data is an awesome character again, largely because of Brent Spiner's performance. He's so good in it. One other, th- one other thing I do want to say about the show is, for me personally, I think it's a better, it makes a better casual watch that does an intense watch. Like it's, it's something to put on while you're doing something else. Ooh, that's a really interesting point. Just because it is so, so, so dialogue heavy. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point. That's a really interesting point. And I'm glad you brought that up because we're going to be getting to that when we get to the movies. Like, you're yeah, actually yeah. really doing a good job of laying out some of the points I want to make. Um, as I said, I always loved, War- I always loved Worf. I think he was a wonderful addition to the uh, cast of uh, Deep Space Nine. I think he was great there. Uh, in fact, I honestly... Oh, he's in Deep Space Nine? Yeah, he's on there for several seasons. Nice. Yeah, um, and he's a really good fit. In fact, actually, he, uh, when, uh, when First Contact was going, he actually had to stop and make a... Ca- they had to actually stop and explain why he was there for deep space or for uh, first contact and for uh, insurrection. They had to stop and explain that he was coming over from deep space nine, which I liked. I, I liked the idea of uh, Worf on that show because he was a good fit. It was a darker show and he was a darker character. Nice. He he really kind of got to be more Klingon on that show, really. But you know, with Picard, I think Picard is the thing that maybe elevates the show above everything else, and it's for one very simple reason. It's not really his writing. Picard's a pretty flatly written character. He's always the noble Patrick guy. Patrick Stewart. But it's it it has to come down to Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Patrick Stewart defines the show. He is such an exceptional talent. I mean, he and we know this. We we know from his other work that he is such a great talent. He elevates everything he's in. He's such a gifted actor, and it is so nice to see him in this role. A uh, fun fact: when before X Men came out, pretty much every fan casting list that I saw for Xavier had Stewart as their choice for Xavier. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And supposedly, when he was being offered the role, he didn't know who the character was. So he was given a comic book, and then he was asked, why am I on the cover of this comic book? Yeah, because, I mean, let's face it, the character, <laughs> the resemblance is so strong. Uh, when they did a Next Generation X-Men crossover novel, uh, which was published in 1998, and which is actually very good, I want to point out. It's actually really good. Uh, I recommend it if you can get your hands on it. Uh, I may even do a blog entry on that one, because that one's so much fun. They even had a bit where Picard sees an image of uh, Xavier and thinks that they look so much alike. And again, this was 98. Stewart wasn't cast until 99. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I mean, Stewart really is the strong... He is the strong link in the chain. And he really elevates it. He is commanding. He's powerful. Interestingly enough, they were afraid because of his uh, baldness that he wouldn't be able to be a successful... Like, they thought that would keep him from being they wanted they wanted uh, the same sex symbol status that, that William Shatner had as Kirk to be blunt <laughs> they didn't suffer there there is one kind of funny bit though um in the last episode of the next generation as a series they have a bit where it flashes forward to about as far removed from that show as like today like 20 years or so into the future 
and they put this old age makeup on Stuart that looks ridiculous. <laughs> he has not aged, like, in 20 years since the show aired. Barely. Barely. I mean, he's barely aged <laughs> yeah. at all. It's fascinating that they that they went to such length to, like, put this just ridiculous goop makeup on him. And, yeah, it, 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 uh, it's, it's silly. But... All that said, one of the things that I think also helped, one of the things I also liked about Deep or about the Next Generation was how good the villains were from throughout. Um, you had a lot of great villains. You had the Borg, uh, the Ferengi. They tried to make villains, and then they realized, oh, they're too silly looking, and they made them comic relief in time. But above all else, you had Q. Q, yeah. Ah, uh, such a great character. Uh, John Delancey was amazing on the show. So. He's a he's a classy guy if you ever get to meet him too. I'm sure. I'm sure he strikes me as someone who really enjoys his position. So with all that said, we're going to look at the four movies, and I'm just going to get this right out of the way. Uh, just just an aside, just another John Delancey aside. This weekend I went to Midwest Brownie Fest, and we, there was like I heard a few times, you know, they're talking about well, the you know the all the actors on the show have a non disclosure agreement, and they can't talk about what's what's upcoming like they can talk about stuff that's already aired to their heart's content but they cannot say a damn thing about what's coming they're like yeah and the big joke is yeah that applies to everybody except john delancey i have not because he just he just fucking like leaks things left and right like says things that he's not supposed to and it's like that's awesome yeah, that's just the thing that he does. And then I think uh, one of, like, that we had a director there, uh, Jim Miller, like, when somebody asked about it, he's like, yeah, I'm sure after after such and such incident, uh, John got a uh, a polite call from Hasbro. <laughs> I'm sure. But that's <laughs> so great. So just, just a little thing about John. That's that right. makes me like he's the guy good. even more. <laughs> He's basically Q personified. And that makes me like the guy more because that tells me that he has a sense of humor and genuinely enjoys what he does. Uh, yeah. I don't mean Little Leaks either. He straight up leaked. Like, he had a song in the in the uh, fourth season. Uh, he straight up just leaked the song. Like, he sang it for an audience at Comic-Con. That's great. That's great. Before, before the episode aired. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will say, if the show, if there is, and I'm glad that you held me, because that's going to keep me from, on one of my, of my big points that I have to make. If the show has any big problem, if the next generation has any big problem, it's that so many of the supporting characters aren't really all that notable. I mean, we mentioned the three that we uh, glommed on to, and uh, Q, honestly, Riker is a huge void of, any character on the show he is he part of what they did that i think was a big mistake was they split up kirk's captain status and his ladies man status and gave the ladies man status to riker probably on the assumption that well he's going to be more of the sex symbol of the show again bald yeah which again that was not actually what wound up happening i would like to point out yeah every i don't know i feel like every time they try to do Riker's ladies, man. It feels like so forced. It was. And his character was so very forced, especially because he had a will-they-won't-they they with Troy that wasn't all that will-they-won't-they. They. It was more like a, I'm not sure anybody on the show really actually cares. 
Like they never yeah. really did much ship teasing with it. Um, yeah. And again, I'm going to point to a Peter David work. Uh, he actually did a novel that laid out their romance in the past. Um, and it's very good. I recommend reading it. Uh, Imzadi is the name of it. It's very good. Um, but like people forget uh, one of the things that, that like at the end of the show, uh, Riker and Troy didn't even get together in the last episode. Troy was with Worf when the show ended. <laughs> oh, man. And that relationship broke up off screen, necessitating a second novel by Peter David to fix that. Wow. Uh, which is also worth reading. They're both good. They're both good. I, I actually really enjoyed it. Uh, I actually enjoyed both novels. So, again, R- Riker was a problem. You also had the problem that they just that the show ran a little too long. It ran for seven seasons. And... You could tell there were various points where they obviously considered ending it. And they didn't. Mm-hmm. They wound up pushing it to season seven to set up the movie. And that's where we're going to get to the movies. And I'm just going to lay out my grand thesis right now. Star Trek The Next Generation is one of the most beloved shows on television of its era. It's one, again, it's one of the most quoted. It left a huge scar on pop culture. Why has it not worked? Why did it not work as movies? That's my central question. Why did it not work as a film franchise? Because uh, because of the four movies that they made, one of them is good. The other three are really kind of not. Yeah. So that's kind of my grand thesis that I want to go through as we look at these. So let's start by talking about Star Trek Generations. <sighs> yeah, this one I frequently, like, you know, you know, you keep saying there are four of them. I'm just like, okay, uh, there's Insurrection, there's First Contact, there's Nemesis. What's the other one? I keep forgetting. It's like, it's fucking Generations, because I don't really consider that, you know... It's almost like my mind has retconned it out of existence within the Star Trek film canon. It's it's a very nothing movie. It is. I, I want to stop right now and point out that when you think about how franchises handle the merging of things within the larger continuity, it's a big deal. When the Marvel Universe characters started to team up, in uh, The Avengers. That was a huge... That was a movie that felt like it had all the impact of these characters coming together and uniting against a major threat. And they did unite against a threat that was worthy of them. Mm -hmm. You have the chance here for a seriously iconic story where where the crews of two Enterprises come together and uh, unite. And that could have been what they... That's the movie they should have made, to be clear is a movie where the two Enterprises have to team up to stop a major threat. Here is the movie that they actually made. First of all, they did try to get most of the crew of the uh, original series back. Most of them said no. No. Uh, I, I think there's... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think there's a cameo by Sulu. Uh, I know Scotty's in it. Uh, I think McCoy might be in it. I'm not sure. Spock, however, is not in Generations. Mm-hmm. Let me point out, by the way, Spock was on the episode Star Trek Unification, uh, The Next Generation Unification. Mm-hmm. If you want to see a much better version of this story, or, you know, where you see the two generations meet up, look at, watch Unification. That's fantastic. In Unification, uh, Picard, you know, because the Vulcans live so long, Picard has to team up with Spock mm. uh, to deal with the Romulans. Oh, nice. Yeah. So we get to see Picard and Spock teaming up. That's good. That's pretty nice. That's that's really yeah. good. That's actually really good, and that's well worth your time if you can watch it. 
But in this case, the only one that came back, of course, was Kirk. Of the, you know, because again, Spock wasn't coming back. And the idea that they came up with for it was that Kirk would finally be forced into retirement. Uh, he hands off the Enterprise to another captain. And damn, what do you know, one day before retirement, he gets his ass killed. Yeah, he gets killed. He gets sucked up into this energy ribbon. And then we jump forward to the Next Generation crew. And my God, the first scene that we see of the Next Generation crew is a holodeck sequence of them on a ship. And it's like a holodeck Uh. sequence recreating this 1700s ship. It's like, you've automatically shown me that you have... There is no sense of scope in this movie, I want to stress. Yeah. Again, this is a movie that should be this grand epic team-up movie. It should be this grand epic team-up. The villain is someone we've never seen before. The deus ex machina that unites the two crews, sort of, that unites the two captains, is a... It's It doesn't even make sense. I mean, we have... A, there are other things in the Star Trek universe that could have worked. Yeah. The uh, the villain of this one is Malcolm McDowell, right? Yeah, who did not want to do the movie, by the way. Uh, McD- really? McDowell did not want to do the movie. He did not enjoy making it. He was pretty miserable doing it. Uh, he's not happy with the film now. And though I would point out, given some of the movies that he's made, he should really be careful what he says. And yeah, it, it kind of shows. He's He, he half-asses it. Actually, I am familiar with history, Captain. And if I'm not too much mistaken, you're dead. The only reason that he was talked into doing this movie was on the grounds that he would get to be the guy that killed Captain Kirk. That was what convinced him to do it, was it was like, well, that's iconic. (laughs) Yeah. What? This just, as I said, this movie is just so bizarre because it does not... And, like, what people may not remember now is how heavily this movie was promoted. I mean, this movie was promoted as a big, epic deal back in 1994. Uh, when I first moved to Conway, uh, this was the movie that was coming out, and this was treated as a major event. This was treated as, like, an epoch-shattering movie. And it's not even as, I wouldn't even say it's as eventful as uh, The Undiscovered Country, which had the uh, truce between the Klingons and the Federation. Like, to me, that feels more important. That feels more epic to track. Okay, as I said, the plot is that this there's this energy ribbon that this guy is trying to direct uh, because he's trying to get into it. And when you're in there, it's like this big hole. You're living out your fantasies you're living out your biggest dreams you're living out everything you always wanted but you're kind of you know it's a fantasy you know it's an illusion Mm -hmm. it's kind of a strange silly plot it is yeah and it just doesn't feel very epic most of this movie of course takes place on either familiar sets or on random planets that are not very yeah they're very uh earth-like they're very earth-like they're they're very they're very we shot in the woods and they had money. That's the funny thing about this movie. They had a ton of money to make it, actually. Part of the grand plot is, like, he uh, aims a missile at the sun. Mm-hmm. You know, to, what, draw this, the ribbon in or something. Make something. It stronger. I don't know. That's part of the problem, too, with this movie, is it's not very accessible for outside viewers. Nah. <laughs> not really. And I think that that's kind of the thing that they missed out on. Like, the beauty of the Avengers was if you hadn't seen any of the other movies... It laid out who the characters were fairly quickly. You got good introduction scenes for every character that told you exactly who they were, exactly what was going on. 
And this movie gives you none of that. This one assumes that you're walking in already a fan. Yeah. And that was a big mistake. As I said, the big problem that this movie has is as the Next Generation crew, there's also kind of the clumsiness of the fact that because this movie is sort of a hybrid Star Trek 7, Star Trek Next Generation 1, like the crew of the Enterprise almost at times gets sidelined because Picard has his whole storyline where he realizes he's the last of his line. And it's tragic. He's sa- it's sad. And, and he gets so much of his screen time, but a lot of the other crew doesn't get much time. Aside from Data getting his goddamn, uh, that emotion chip. Oh, is this the movie this with is the, the emotion, emotion chip. chip? This is the movie with the emotion chip. Uh... We were on the bridge. You told a joke. That was the punchline. <laughs> Our point, Data, that was seven years ago. I know. I just got it. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> Why? Why? The whole thing is that it malfunctions. This is going to come to be Data's role in all but one of these movies, which is yeah. he's almost, which is he's always doing something weird. Uh, we're going to get to Data in First Contact in a bit, uh, but oh my God, he he's always with his. Data is always with his Pinocchio syndrome. Data always wants to be Pinocchio. Nobody ever pulls. I don't want to be a real boy. Nobody ever pulls Data aside and says just how awesome his life is. Yeah. Because he's immortal. He's stronger. He's indestructible. There is so much good about being Data. I much prefer the Data, you know, that's reciting poetry that's an ode to his cat mm-hmm. than the Data that is laughing maniacally for absolutely no fucking reason. Ode to Spot. Felis catus. Is your taxonomic nomenclature an endothermic quadruped, carnivorous by nature? Your visual, olfactory, and auditory senses contribute to your hunt. <laughs> I think something is wrong. <laughs> yeah, and it's because it's funny. I mean, honestly, Spiner usually gets treated as like comic relief or plot device in, in these movies. Mm-hmm. Again, aside from First Contact, which we're going to be getting to. Mm. But, I mean, he's here in this movie, he's just a comedic device, and he's irritating. But one more aside for Data. I think uh, part of the problem is, you know, the, that the movies have with him is, you know, the lack of understanding of what his motivations are, what he is. Yeah. I think, you know, his motivation isn't to, to be human is to understand humanity yeah. and how it works. That's it. And the movies always try to treat it as that he has Pinocchio syndrome. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. No, that's not it that's at all. That's not it. He wants to understand us. He doesn't really want to be us. I will point out, look, I read a lot of Star Trek novels growing up. I'm just going to point that out. So I'm going to be making a lot of references to them, even though none of them are canon. They actually did a story in one of the novels where Data became a human being. And it was kind of interesting. It was kind of interesting. Of course, it was obvi- quickly written out, and uh, at the end it's hinted it was all just a dream, but, you know, it's good. It was a good book. And even though the book explicitly said this is not in continuity. Yeah. Yeah, which it had to. Um, this this is not canon. It's not canon. It was a good book, though. It's a good book. Uh, Metamorphosis. It's well worth finding if you can. It's, it's good. It's a good book. I, this just, oh my god, Data got on my nerves so much in this movie. He is not well written. But then this movie comes to its big problem. As I said, this movie has no real epic scope. We get the the illusion sequences, we get Picard's dream sequences, because Picard does wind up in the ribbon, and then he finds James T. Kirk. 
where it's Christmas every day. It's Christmas in heaven, there's great films on TV. The sound of music twice an hour, and Jaws 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> everything about Kirk's character in this, everything about, oh my god, this is so bad. Everything about the Nexus drove me nuts. Again, you have time travel as a major plotline in Star Trek. Nobody blinks at time travel. Why did you just not just do a story where the crew of the Enterprise got sent back in time, and then you could have gotten in so many of the other characters? You could fix this. That would have been so much better. You would have had you would have had Kirk and Picard butting heads instead of teaming up, and that would have been so much more interesting. The problem is this movie is so fixable. Uh, this movie is so God. now. Of course, we're looking at it from the vantage point of twenty-two years, but this movie is still so mm. fixable. Everything that's wrong with it could be fixed, but it's not. I mean, as I said, that's all you would have to do is you send him back in time. You could have gotten in some of the other characters. Wouldn't that have been fun? I think both casts would have said hell yes to that plot. <sighs> but this, that would this, have been awesome. And that's the thing. This is a this script. Um, like the script for First Contact was written by, um, first of all, Rick Berman was the producer that was pretty much running the show on these. Rick Berman was not a friend to Star Trek. Uh, Rick Berman ran Star Trek for a good many years and kind of helped run it into the ground. I'm just going to yeah, say. Yeah, that's it. what I've heard. I'm really, I, by the way, I want to point out while I'm, I'm looking this up, I'm getting really excited about the potential for, um, the next one that uh, they're going to do, uh, the series with uh, Brian Fuller. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, yeah, they're, they're making a new uh, TV series. Yeah, I have hope for that. I have hope for that. Um, okay. It's going to be in continuity with the rest of the TV series, not the new movies. Yeah. It, it, mm-hmm. Boy, I'm looking up some of the actors that were in. Uh, yeah, Scotty and Chekhov came over, but um, they were the only ones that came over. That's uh, uh, alongside Kirk. That's kind of frustrating. Yeah, and they had like what Sulu's daughter. Mm, or they something had Sulu's like that. daughter. That was. They do have a that moment, was the workaround. They do have a moment where they uh, kind of like they're like Sulu had a daughter, and everybody's looking around like, huh? Guys, yeah. they knew. Everybody on the set of Star Trek knew. Can I point that out? Everybody mm-hmm. on the set of Star Trek knew. Um, there was never any question. Everybody knew. Uh, okay. So I have the writers up. It was Brandon Braga and um, Ronald D. Moore were the major writers. They were the major writers on Trek just from that era. Mm-hmm. They worked on multiple episodes of the show. They were tapped to write the movie. Um, they worked on multiple episodes of Generation or of Voyager. They worked on multiple episodes of Enterprise. That was... Uh, and they co-create, and they uh, co-created it, and uh, Braga co-created Enterprise. So I'm just pointing that out. So anyway, uh, Generations was written by them. It was also directed by a guy by the name of David Carson. Does that name ring any bells? Uh, no. No, it won't, and I'll tell you why. I'm checking IMDb to be sure about this. I don't think he directed another movie. I actually don't. <laughs> I don't think he did. Like, I'm reasonably certain this he was a TV director. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm checking right now. He, I think he directed a couple of TV, of, like, uh, TV stuff and maybe a few, like, little... I don't think he ever directed another uh, m- movie for theaters. 
Mm. Uh, in fact, I'm not being led to believe that he did. Yeah, that might not well. have been a good idea. <laughs> let me just let me just throw that out there. That might not have been a good idea. Hiring somebody who wasn't a theatrical director that might have a lot to do with the scope of this movie. But yeah, I don't know. This movie is a mess. This movie is a. It, it's just not satisfying. It's just. I don't know. But of course, we do have to hit on one quick thing before we leave this movie. Let's address Kirk's death. He basically, uh, what is it? He falls off a bridge. He gets a bridge dropped on him. This this is such a bad yeah. death that it has become a that it's one of that it's what TV tropes uses as their name for bad deaths is dropped a bridge on him. Dropped a bridge. So that's that's the trope name. Dropped a bridge on him. Yep. Wow. That's, that's how bad wow. this death is. That it's that iconic. It's a bad, sudden death, and it's not at all satisfying. It's not at all. A, a, I mean, this is Captain James T. Kirk. He deserved a better death. Yeah, he deserved to go out, like, like with a phaser in his hand and... You know, in a gunfight, like, you know, have him be shot, you know, something, hell, have him, have him strapped to the missile that he fight, that the bad guy fired into the sun. That would have been a more fitting death. Something, anything, you know, I don't know, what, 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 oh, I mean, the Enterprise also blows up, but who cares? Just anything, I just, ugh, this is not a satisfying death. It's, it's, It's a very bad death, and... I think I think there's a certain I think it occurs to me that a lot of the problems with this movie are inherent in some of the things that the show did wrong. Star Trek: The Next Generation almost always tried to be a very warm and very fuzzy and very upbeat show, a very optimistic and warm show, and that might not have been what was called for. Roddenberry had some very uh, constricting uh, requirements. Yes, he for did. That show. Yes, he did. Like there, there could be. Almost no conflict on it, which is really boring. And when he was fired, the show got much more interesting. Yeah. When at what point was he fired? In about the, show? the second or third season, he was pretty much given no control. He there was pretty much kicked upstairs and given no control. And and also, it's worth noting, Roddenberry is one of those creators. He created the show. He didn't really have that much say on what people think of when they think of the iconic elements of the show. A lot of that came from other writers. It's it's kind of funny because he's like George Lucas in that way. It's like, look, you created something great, you know, you it's great that you're behind this, but man, you need to step aside and let some more creative people take over. But even but even Lucas, I mean, Roddenberry's ideas were much worse than Lucas's ideas for the prequels, just to be clear. Uh yeah, that's like I want to make that clear, and I'm not saying that lightly. Roddenberry had some really atrocious ideas that didn't work. Mm. But with all that said, let me address then. So let, but as I said, Generations is not in any way satisfying. So let's change the tone completely. Generations was a huge hit, but it wasn't a critical hit. It only has a 6.6 on IMDb, for example. Audiences were not happy. And the decision was made, let's do something else. Let's let's go in a very different direction. So for the first true solo Next Generation movie, one that doesn't have the burden of the handoff, they came up with an interesting idea. And this was something, mm-hmm. first of all, they went darker. First PG-13 in Star Trek history. They yeah. decided to bring back in the idea of time travel, 
But they came up with a unique idea. They considered the idea of maybe the crew of the Enterprise going into Earth's past. Uh, like our past, like what we think of, i.e. before 1996. And then they said, no, let's do time travel, but let's do time travel to a date that's still in the future. So the idea was came up with, of okay, let's, let's travel to the time where just before uh, humanity makes its first contact with aliens. Hence the title, Star Trek First Contact. And this was the best idea that they had of all of them. Let's bring back the Borg. Yeah. Oh my god, I love the Borg so much. The Borg are so awesome. They factor into the uh, Star Trek The Next Generation Doctor Who uh, crossover miniseries, by the way. Uh, they're one, oh, really? Yeah, it's the Borg and the Cybermen are the villains. Ah, that's perfect. Both have both have the same goal. Mm-hmm. I highly, highly, highly recommend that miniseries if you can get your hands on it, it's, which is not hard. It's out there. It's IDW, isn't it? Yeah, it's IDW. Oh, yeah, of course it's IDW. If it's, if it's a really good licensed comic, you should kind of expect it's by IDW. I may or may not have that in digital form Ooh. from Humble, Humble Bundle. Ooh, then read it. Maybe. I know I have some Doctor Who comics, but I don't know if I have that one. Read it, because it's really good. It's it's really good. Um, Okay, Star Trek First Contact is the first Star Trek movie that I saw in theaters. Because I saw Generations on video. Oh my god, I love this movie so much. Yeah, it's, it's fun. It's I, a lot of fun. This is a fantastic movie. This is a movie that has held up so well over the years. And it's interesting to study why does this movie work. First of all, this movie actually feels a lot more like a movie. Which is interesting because once again the director was somebody without any real experience as a director. Uh, Jonathan Frakes, who played Riker, stepped up and took on the job. He's actually directed a few other things outside of uh, Trek. Uh, he, he directed a number of episodes of the show and uh, you know he, did, he, uh, he also directed a couple of movies that weren't all that good, but at least he directed something. This is a really great looking movie. This is, uh, so there's a, there was an obvious, uh, special effects budget on the film that showed like they obviously had money. The giant board cube as it attacks is just a breathtaking visual. And the fact that LeVar Burton's character has bionic eyes. Yeah, that was, that actually looked really cool. Um, it did. Yeah. The, the, the supporting cast got a little more to do this time. Um, not much, but some. Uh, admittedly, Troy's scene is mostly her getting drunk. But you know what? It's funny. It is a funny scene. Um, with this movie, they did yeah. something really smart, though, and I think this is the smartest thing that they did. They really put the anchor of this movie on Picard. Uh, same, by the way, same writers as uh, First Contact, or as uh, Generations, I want to point out. Same writers, but this time they had really? a folk... Yeah. But this time they had a focused story. The... For those who are unaware, the, in the series, Picard was actually captured and assimilated into the board. And, of course, that's one of those things that you can never get free of once you're assimilated, but, you know, star of the show, he got unassimilated. And it dealt with the idea of Picard seeking revenge. Like, the plot of the movie is the Borg go back in time to try and stop humanity's first contact with the... Uh, uh, a, with uh, the Vulcans, which uh, occurred when a deranged inventor uh, played wonderfully by James Cromwell. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to think if there's ever been a movie I've seen Cromwell in that didn't automatically make it just a bit better. Nah. nah. Yeah. I mean, LA Confidential certainly wasn't hurt by him. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. To see him, like, play this kind of role. Like, uh, the guy who... Yeah, the guy who invented space travel, basically. Basically, the guy who 
made everything that happens in Star Trek possible. And, and he's a and he's a drunken uh, rock music loving uh, <laughs> would be womanizer. Uh, I, I also want to point out this is the first movie that a lot of people saw Cromwell in after Babe. And this is such a total mm-hmm. 180 from that film. I think it really helped him get some traction on his film career. Because people were like, oh, he can do a lot. And he's he's so good in this. I I, I loved him in this. He, he's really wonderful here. Um, it also has fun with the idea of what happens when you go back in time and you're to meet someone who you can... Because to them, he's this great man, this great hero. And he's not. He's not that person. He's not the person that they treat him as. You know, because he's the one that advanced everything. He's the one that advanced humanity so far. And he's not. Um, I love that idea. That's the thing. That's an actual idea that this movie plays with. Yeah, and it's probably actually often the case when you, uh, if you were to meet your favorite historical figures. Oh, yeah. And and I love the movie really has fun with that. Uh, Because they treat him as this guy who was trying to further humanity's pursuits and blah 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 and he's like look i just wanted to make enough money to retire to a a tropical island with a bunch of beautiful women that's all i wanted (laughs) and that's one of the great moments in this film but and that's and it's interesting because okay you have that humorous side to this film you also have the really dark plot of picard trying to stop the borg largely out of revenge um the uh stewart has always been has long been associated with moby dick um Largely probably due to the fact that he, uh, you know, that was a running theme for Picard was uh, the uh, idea that the Borg were sort of his great white whale. And also the fact that uh, Stuart did play Ahab in a a TV movie. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but that idea is really played with here. The idea that Picard, he needs this revenge and it's about the dark. He's willing to sacrifice everything he has. He's willing to sacrifice the ship just to get rid of the Borg. And that's a fascinating idea. And Stuart really does handle taking this honorable, noble character to these dark places very well. It's a really creepy movie, too. The Borg themselves are... They got a major upgrade in their design for the movie, and it looks great. I mean, this Mm -hmm. this is some really... The the makeup for this movie was actually Oscar-nominated. It lost to uh, The Nutty Professor, but uh, good makeup. Mm -hmm. Uh... So the action's really good, but let's talk about Data's plotline, because that's the really good part. That's that's a really good plot about this movie, is uh, Data's plot. I don't know how well you remember it, do you? I don't remember what Data's role oh, in this one was. Oh, well then no. let me refresh your memory. Data gets seduced by the Borg... We get to meet the Borg Queen for the first time. This was a, mm. a new invention for the movie. Uh, she's wonderfully creepy. She is, yeah. Almost seductive. Yeah. All I can think of is just the fact that her like her uh, head can separate from her shoulder yeah. from her uh, shoulders. It's like ugh. She's a wonderfully creepy yeah. character. She's very unsettling. Um, uh, Alice Krieg, who plays the role, does an excellent job. Uh, she's a a great villain, and she seduces Data with the idea of she can. Okay, the I- whole idea of the Borg is that they can uh... make you more robot. She seduces him with the idea of I can make you more human. That's right. Yeah, okay. Let me also elaborate on my point further on this, as far as, you know, the Pinocchio thing. The ending of this plot is a little more satisfying because he sacrifices the idea of becoming human. You can read into that as, 
you know what? No, I don't really want this. I want to understand you guys, but I don't really want this. It's in a way, it's almost that he gains humanity by choosing to sacrifice what he wants for what the crew needs. The needs of the the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. I want us all to remember yeah, that yeah. quote because we're going to be talking about insurrection next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my god! So oh, I can't get ahead of myself, but. But yeah, but it's, it's almost like Data gives up that part of himself, and, and in doing so, does the human thing. And it, like at the end, Picard asks him, "Were you ever, were you ever tempted?" And he just lists this very minute period of time. It's like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second. But he says that's an eternity for an android, and that's mm-hmm. just it. He really does what you can tell that this really bothered him because, of course, we find out no, he was never actually going to go over to the Borg side, but he weighed it. He weighed it, and that's a powerful idea. Um, yeah, his his plot here is really it's the it may be the best of any in any of the shows. Even I mean, this is such a good plot. I don't know. As I said, First Contact is just such a great movie. As I said, the action is fantastic. This is a movie that pretty handily stands out as one of the better action movies of 1996 easily, and it it did have big crossover appeal. It it did reach more of a non trek audience. Because it felt like a big science fiction movie, which it was. Uh, there is a little bit of a throwback. Uh, we do briefly go into one of Picard's Dixon Hill holodeck stories. Oh, I really loved that when we just suddenly jump in and they're on the holodeck trying to hide from the, uh, hi- trying to hide from the Borg, and uh, <laughs> and all of a sudden they're in a gangster scenario. I, I do want to point out, Alfred Woodard plays Picard's love interest in this, and she's really good. It's kind of a shame we didn't get to see more of her. Um, she's, she's, uh, Cochran's, uh, the, uh, creator of the warp drive. She's his number two, and she's a really strong character. And, and I like that. I, I also like Star Trek can at times be overwhelmingly white, uh, aside from supporting characters. So it was kind of nice to see a strong black woman in the films. Uh, I just enjoyed that. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about what went right. Can we just mm-hmm. end the, can we end the happiness and go on to the next two movies? Cause I'm going to get really upset. Oh boy. Yeah. Which one came first? Uh, it was it insurrection was insurrection or nemesis. Insurrection. I was so excited for insurrection because of how much I loved, 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 just absolutely loved first contact. I could not wait for insurrection. And the weekend that it came out, I went to see Pleasantville instead. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's probably the better choice. Oh, that was an infinitely better choice. I love Pleasantville. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it holds up. Honestly, if it wasn't for The Truman Show, Pleasantville would probably be my favorite movie of 1998. Uh, the Truman Show is just that much of a masterpiece. Uh, yeah. But I, I love Pleasantville. Um, I, I chose to see that instead of uh, the of uh, Insurrection because it was obvious. Okay, a 14-year-old should not be able to look at a movie and go, oh, there's something wrong with this. Mm-hmm. You know, you're 14, you have no taste, really. You're kind of still in that era where uh, movies are movies are good. Yeah, but I could tell just just on the basis of the trailers, it was like, oh, this is, this is going to be bad. Also, you have to keep in mind, I was reading like a Star Trek novel a week at the time, and I still didn't go see it. I watched it on video, uh, and that, that's going to prove true for the next, uh, for Nemesis as well. I watched that on video too. Mm-hmm. Oh, this movie is just... Okay, let me explain a little bit about what happened. This movie had a very troubled production. Um, the writers of the, fir- of the first two Next Generation movies were busy with other things. 
So they didn't come back to write it. They went through idea upon idea upon idea. From what I've read, this movie was noted to death. Uh, at one point, the, the villains were going to be the Romulans, uh, mm-hmm. which is to say, which for non-Trekkies are basically the Vulcans, but a splinter faction that became their rival. But y'all should be familiar with them. That The Romulans have shown up in other stories before. Oh, God. They noted this movie to death. They went through idea upon idea upon idea and just kind of the initial idea that they actually wanted to go for was a heart of darkness idea with data going severely bad and Picard having to go in and rescue him. Like it would have been a heart of darkness story. It would have been a very bleak story with data going into and getting, and they kind of kept a little bit of that idea here with data getting in trouble on a uh, mission that he's been loaned out to. Boy, that's a bad idea, by the way, loaning out a person. Yeah. As I said, this movie just had so many notes, and they couldn't decide on a title until the very last minute. Like, almost before they were had to take it to the theater. Almost before they had to put the trailer out. That was how long they shot the movie under the title Star Trek Nine. Nothing went right on this movie. In fact, here's how bad it was. They actually did a making of book that the studio said you cannot release. Oh, 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 oh. oh. <sighs> there's a good sign for your movie when the studio won't let you release the making of book. Uh, oh my God, I hate this movie so much. This is, in my opinion, the worst Star Trek movie of all the franchises. Like, mm-hmm. people who think Into Darkness is bad, yeah, it's got its problems. It's not nearly this bad. People who think uh, The Final Frontier is bad, yeah, it's probably a close call, but this is still worse. Here's my problem with this movie, and I want to see if you can agree with me. This movie, they decided over time... Now, keep in mind, what made First Contact such a hit was that it was a darker movie. It was a darker, Mm -hmm. bleaker Star Trek movie. You would think that would be the direction they would go in. No. Through the notes process, this became a lighter, funner movie. Mm -hmm. With things such as Worf gets acne. Uh... Mm Mm-hmm. Worf gets acne. In this movie, Riker and Troy's Will They Won't They finally gets resolved only because it's only because the studio notes demanded that happen. Uh. Yeah. Studio notes said, okay, resolve that. And that's why that's why they get flung back together. And then at the end when uh Riker because the whole idea is that they land on this planet that's got this bizarre rejuvenating radiation that keeps everybody eternally young. Oh, and by the way, they're all space hippies. Yes, they are. Because that's the thing. If you ever see Paradise in a movie, it's always a space hippie world. It's always, we're with one with nature, and we're... It's like you never see a technocracy. You never see, we've got access to the most advanced technology in the world. Well, they're they're also... They're also... They're a hippie cult, basically. Yeah, basically. Because they all wear the same stuff, and yeah... Ugh. They all wear the same uniforms, and they live as one with nature. Oh, oh, shut the hell up. No, no, no. I am so sick of that trope in movies. So, you've got all this wrong. You've got this. You've got just, ugh, the space hippie bullshit. So, like, as I said, everybody lands on this planet. They all start to get this, like, sense of youthfulness and energy. Like, uh, Geordi's eyes uh, fix themselves and heal. And so suddenly he's not blind. Mm-hmm. Now, by the way, the plot of this movie is that the villains are trying to move the space hippies off the planet so that they can 
uh, harvest the radiation. You know, this is something that could probably, that if it can cure blindness, this could potentially be one of the most wonderful things in the world. This, you know, so maybe these few people might need to move. Uh, does anybody see a problem with this story? Like, you're well, displacing thousands to save billions? Yeah, it's kind of a uh, Native American allegory, isn't it? Only with uh, white people and white people. Okay. Oh, yeah, because that's the thing. They're all white. They're all the whitest people, as I said. My God, this movie is so white. This movie is so white privilege. I swear. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very very tone deaf. It's very tone deaf. Uh, but even even if we acknowledge that, okay, there is that issue that it is kind of an allegory. You're in a situation for which, when you find out what actually the space people's story is, and you realize that oh, that they're a group that rejected. But that they done 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 turned out to actually be of the same race as the uh, villains on uh, who are trying to harvest the radiation. It's like suddenly this allegory just does not work at all. No, it's so clunky. Yeah, <sighs> like even uh, Roger Ebert noted this in his press tour. Even the cast, when they were asked about the ideas of this movie, they were like, "Well, you know, honestly, the villains do have a good point. This this is reasonable." You know, it is a reasonable idea. You know, again, that idea of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Okay, yeah, maybe it might not be a bad idea to allow this potentially life-saving, miraculous radiation. I mean, there's just so much there that could be dealt with. And this movie is just so tone deaf. Um, This movie does have one great moment, and it's Michael Dorn's delivery of a line at the end of this movie, where after Riker and Troy have gotten back together... And Riker's wondering, is it just maybe the radiation that made them get back together? And Dorn, with all of the rage that he can barely suppress, says maybe some feelings just needed to be let out. You can tell Dorn is absolutely furious that he, who had his romantic subplot handled off-screen in a non-canonical novel, you can tell he's pissed that he had that this is what happened. You can tell he's pissed. He doesn't hide it. This movie is bad. This movie is so bad. And it's just such a giant letdown after in, after First Contact. Mm-hmm. It's just not a good movie. No. Yeah, I I had to I had to think hard about whether I had actually seen it or not. And then you reminded me of what the plot was. It's like, oh yeah, I've seen that. I thought that was an episode of the show. And you know, <laughs> You said you thought it was an episode of the uh, show? Yeah, I kind of, yeah, my memories of it kind of blended with that. I want to point, you know what, let's hold on that, because that's an excellent point. So let's discuss that for a moment. Mm-hmm. Right then and there, you're hitting on the problem with the first two of the three, with three, two of the first three of these movies. They feel like episodes of The Next Generation. There is no reason this story could not have been told on The Next Generation. Hell, it probably was multiple times. You know... As hippie as that show could be, oh my god, that's exactly what this feels like. This is an overlong episode of the TV show. The new writer that was brought in was another one of the TV writers. Uh, Frakes continued to direct, but, you know, with a script like this, you can't do anything. And I don't even blame the the writer who uh, passed away, I don't think, too long after this movie came out, actually. Because it was just a bad situation. As I said, he was being studio-noted to death. Like, at one point, Patrick Stewart demanded a love interest, so they gave him one. I mean, that's how bad this movie was made. Oh, God. 
I'm just I'm 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 really ranty about this movie, but you nailed it. This feels like an episode of the show. You also pointed something out that I want mm-hmm. to get back to. You noted that the show was very dialogue heavy and very casual. Mm-hmm. This is also the same way. This is a very talky movie. Yeah. It's a lot of talk. That's probably why I didn't remember it. Yeah. Uh I want to point out this movie did fine financially. It 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 did about seventy million, not overly impressive. In fact, I'm gonna check the box office real quick. Alright. But but I mean, yeah, it just this feels like an episode of the show. And it's just not it's just not something that grabs you. I mean, first contact, by the way, has a ninety three percent at Rotten Tomatoes. I just want to point that out. Nice. Yeah. Good. That feels right. That feels right. That that feels like a ninety three percent. First contact um, actually made. Um, first contact actually made a really really strong uh, box office. It made one hundred forty six million worldwide. Uh, domestically, it actually made ninety two million. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the that was really strong. It, it made uh, it domestically made ninety two million. Insurrection only made. Let's see. It didn't have the. It had lower box. It had a lower opening weekend than both First Contact and Generations. Um, it only wound up making seventy million. So that's a twenty-two million drop-off. Mm-hmm. That's a big chunk of your audience that gets shed between movies. Yeah. Uh, I'm just gonna throw this out there. When there's a big chunk of your audience that doesn't come back for the sequel, and it's that big, and your opening weekend is uh, eight million dollars less than your opening weekend, which uh, than your previous opening weekend, and that's like a third, of, almost a third of the box office. That's where the trailers came in. I really think it's the trailers and marketing that pe- kept people from coming back to this movie. But let's get, But we have to go on. As I said, everybody knows this movie is bad. I, I don't think there's any real mystery there. And yeah. unfortunately, it's very easily available on uh, Netflix. Um, so let's jump forward and talk about a movie that's... Sh- just frustrating just yeah just just frustrating um i want to point something out between uh, insurrection and nemesis it was four years that's the double the length of time between first contact and insurrection and also double the length of time between first contact and generations star trek yeah almost went on hold for four years when did uh nemesis come out again nemesis came out in 2002 Nemesis came out at a very in a very different era for movies, though. In the four years between movies, things started to change dramatically. The first stirrings of the superhero franchises were already out. Uh, the X-Men franchise, for example, had its first entry. Spider-Man had its first entry by the time this movie came out. Star Wars had two movies come out between Insurrection and uh, Nemesis. So you had two-thirds of the Star Wars prequel trilogy that were already done. The landscape was changing dramatically for this series. And this is where I think the big flaw of these movies starts to be exposed. As you said, they feel like episodes. Yeah. That also kind of applies to some of the cast, too. Most of the actors played it on a... They played it on a TV level. And I think that everybody involved in uh, Nemesis knew point blank that they had screwed up. They knew that, you know, Rick Berman, as... Vain as he was, as ego-driven as he was, knew that, okay, obviously something didn't work with Nemesis, with uh, Insurrection. The decision on Nemesis was made to go in a different direction. Uh, they went outside for a uh, writer. Uh, the writer that they wound up tapping to do it was John Logan. 
a very gifted writer, I would point out. Very, mm-hmm. very gifted writer. Uh, he is a Tony Award winner. Uh, Tony Award winning playwright. Uh, he, he's written such films as Skyfall, Hugo, The Aviator. So, nice. very good writer. Excellent writer, really. Um, he was brought in to uh, do the script. Uh, he was a Star Trek fan, of course. I mean, that goes without saying. Uh, he, uh, yeah, he... Uh, he also, I mean, he he also wrote the excellent RKO two eighty one. Have you ever seen that? I have not. Oh, I recommend you do so. Um, that's about the making of Citizen Kane. Oh, nice. Yeah, very very good writer. Um, Berman pointed point blank wanted fresh blood on this movie. Um, he wanted he wanted people who were different. Uh, he wanted people who were unique. You know, so that was kind of what they were going for here. They also decided while they were making this movie that they kind of wanted to explore the idea that this might be the last one. Mm-hmm. So this movie very much feels like it's intended as a bookend, but with so much left open. Uh, the story inv- includes Riker being promoted to a captain. Is uh, He gets his own ship in this movie. That's one of the things that happens. Riker and Troy get married at the beginning of it. You've got that stuff. Uh, Data, quote unquote, dies. That was how Brent Spiner was brought in. Uh, Data dies in this movie. Sort of. Not really. Sort of. This movie really did not have uh, much comfort with stakes. If they really wanted to show some stakes, they would have killed Picard, I say. Yeah, I think so. But there's this idea going through this movie of, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be important. This is going to be, this is going to matter. No, no, it, it doesn't. Yeah, Data is killed and then replaced with a robot that looks and kind of acts like him. Again, the goal that they had with this movie was to do something fresh and exciting. Uh, once more, they went dark. One of the things that was interesting was the studio wanted a name actor to play. Uh, the plot of the movie is that uh, a, a group of evil aliens, uh, they're all evil aliens, aren't they? Of course they are. That's always... That, they come up with this convoluted plot that they've cloned Picard, and uh, they're going to eventually replace him. Because it's a, a clone that they've artificially aged up, uh, and they're going to replace him. Uh, the studio wanted someone like Jude Law, a name. The, the director wanted an unknown and was really impressed by this uh, guy uh, that no, no one had ever heard of who wound up getting the job. Which, since it leaked out who the studio wanted, it felt kind of underwhelming when uh, the guy was cast. Let's insert a clip of Bane here. You merely adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. Yes. Yes, Tom Hardy wound up landing the role. And this kind of derailed his career for a few years, actually. Yeah, Hardy did not have it very... Poor guy. Poor guy. He did not have it very good for a few years. Uh, Tom Hardy was brought in to play a young Patrick Stewart. Uh, Let's just all agree that that's not quite effective casting. Yeah. (laughs) Hardy looks nothing like Patrick Stewart. Like... Even remotely, even though at that point he was much thinner, like he wasn't nearly as muscular as he is now, he looks nothing like Patrick Stewart. Even the prosthetics no. they tried to give him to make him... God, this movie, this movie has such a stupid plot. The, the He, of course, since he is, of course, uh, artificially aged up, he wants to uh, get a hold of uh, Picard so that he can, you know, stop his aging. There's some kind of stuff. I don't know. The Yeah, it's very... He has to have, like, surgery or something like that, and they're, uh, I don't know. It's a transfusion of of Picard's blood is what he wants. 
Yeah. And the, the plot of this movie is bizarre, which is uh, that uh, there's like a Romulan, the Romulans have been taken over by someone from uh, their uh, planet that they're on. And it's uh, the idea was that uh, uh, Picard's clone was created by the Romulans to create a spy. And it's just, this is a convoluted plot. This is a silly plot of a movie. I will give them the. I will give them credit. This is at least an ambitious attempt at trying to make a movie. This definitely feels a hell of a lot more like a movie. Yeah. But it's. I don't know. It doesn't work. Like I really do give them credit. It's a good plot, sort of. Not really. It's sort of. The idea. Uh, the idea of Picard confronting a dark mirror is a great plot. You yourself actually suggested a fix for this plot that could have done all the work right there. Yeah, make him uh, Picard's son. That way you can get away with, you know, not having him look exactly like him. And also, you kind of begin where you end where you began. Uh, Generations After All mm-hmm. talks so much about Picard's desire to have a family. Wouldn't that be a great idea? Mm-hmm. Plus, plus the stakes would be so much higher. It's the idea that Picard has to confront... The idea that Picard has to confront something that he has guilt over. The idea that he has a son that he didn't maybe didn't know about or had been kept from him, but a responsibility that he feels. And then he, you know, he also wonders, the idea that this movie does have going for it, and this is the idea that I like, is the idea of nature versus nurture. Uh, Picard, mm-hmm. we know from the show, was raised in a loving family, was very happy. This guy was raised in the mines, basically. He was a slave. And he was yeah. a sad character. But the whole plot of the Romulans creating a clone of Picard to be a spy is so stupid. And I should point out, Hardy's fine here, but he always is. By the way, Ron Perlman is in this, not that you'd notice. He's buried under heavy prosthetics and he has nothing to do. Um, Oh my god. Yeah. Data gets destroyed, but guess what? He's uh, put his, uh, as you noted, he's put his brain in uh, the other android that happens to be like one of his model, basically. Um, yeah, I will say there is one fun, funny story about uh, Ron Perlman working on the set. Um, Perlman is one of those guys that's not prone to saying he's prone to speaking his mind. But he said that uh, eight years after the movie came out, keep in mind, after, long after it had been consigned to being a flop, he was like, yeah, uh, talking about Hardy. He said, yeah, I loved him when I first met him. I loved working with him. I thought found him to be a really smart, really a great kid. So there there's one cool thought uh, to come out of this. Uh, there you go. Ron Perlman and Ber- but Perlman, I think like I think his voice was digitally altered for this too. Boy, there was something that was necessary. <laughs> Making Ron Perlman's voice more intimidating. There was a good use of your money. Yeah. Making Hellboy's voice more more <laughs> Oh my god, yeah. please watch Hellboy instead. Which by the way, based on the box office, a lot of y'all did. No, they didn't have to alter his voice for Hellboy. They didn't have to. God, it, it, they, they, oh my God, there's just so much. The thought that Perlman, of all people, would be wasted, because I love Ron Perlman. I, I always have. I, he's, he's so great. I, I love it when he shows up in anything. I love that he's in Drive. I love that he's in Drive in a pretty good role, too. He's funny in that. Yeah. He, he's fun in that. Uh, that's such a, Drive is awesome. That's all. But you all, but most of you all should already know that. Um, if you don't, don't watch the trailer before you go into the. Yeah, movie. it's just, just a total spoiler. But again, I've shot through this movie. Is just so much. 
And again, it's I think this movie comes down to the problem that it doesn't seem to know if it's really a conclusion. There's the idea that maybe they're going to go forward. And that's because during production, they weren't sure if this was going to be the last one or if it was going to be maybe an attempt at a soft reboot. So that's why there's not really any closure. Um, also, a third of the movie got cut before release. Oh. Yeah. Does that surprise you? Because it probably shouldn't. Before we leave this, yeah, the one thing that sticks out in the movie that's like, that really shouldn't be there is uh, the uh, the dream rape scene. Oh, yeah, that's really bad. Where, um, yeah, where Hardy's character, like, uh, infiltr- uh, violates Troy's mind. Yeah, that was bad. <laughs> that- yeah, that's... It's just like, why? No, why did you need to do this? You don't need to do this. Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, there's just, there's so much that just doesn't work here. Um, um, as I said, so much of this movie got cut. Um, 50 minutes worth of deleted scenes were filmed. I just want to point that out. 50 minutes. Uh, not all of which were usable in final form. So, uh, but that's a pretty big, um, that's a pretty big uh, thing. Especially when you consider that the movie was 116 minutes. So that tells me that there is a running... That there's nearly a three-hour cut of this movie out there. There should not be a nearly three-hour cut of this movie. Um, apparently mm. that cut would have made it feel more final. Apparently a lot yeah. of the scenes that would have actually really set up the idea that this is the last one. But again, I just... I don't know. This movie... I will say this. The special effects are good. Uh, it certainly looks like a bigger movie. But it still doesn't quite feel like they came to play. Like, it had a $60 million budget. That's not a small budget. But it still didn't feel like they came to play, really. Like, it didn't feel like they came to play on the playing field of the, of the bigger franchises. It feels small, really. And it, as I said, it's such a convoluted plot. The fact that we can't even clearly explain it to you says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. So, this is a mess. Let's talk about this movie's release real quick. Released on December 13th, 2002. Already currently in theaters at the same time were Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, uh, the James Bond movie Die Another Day, and five days later, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Oof. <laughs> mm-hmm. It only grossed $43 million in the United States. That's much... That's less... That's, om- that's like $28 million less than uh, even Insurrection grossed. And that one was considered a huge disappointment. Mm-hmm. Star Trek was dead for oh, seven geez. years after this movie. And when they when it did come back up, it was a total reboot. Total reboot. Total continuity reboot. Sort of. Sort of. They had a tie to the past continuity. Sort of. Yeah. I wish... And it's uh, Enterprise, for the record, went off the air a couple years later. Uh, Enterprise did not... Enterprise limped to its ending. Uh, it, yeah. It it, 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 it it really did. So with all that said, why was this such an underwhelming film franchise? Because again, I, I point out, people still talk about The Next Generation. People still reference it. I still hear it talked about all the time. People still cite their favorite episodes. Why did the movies not work? Yeah, and I think it's... You know, I, I, pos- I stand by my thesis that it's... Um, that the series just really wasn't prone for, you know, movies. Like, just the format of the series was not, did not lend itself to this. 
Like, as far as, you know, a Hollywood movie. I think you're right. I I think you actually nailed it there. I think you're right. I think that the show was such casual viewing, and instead of making each episode be, instead of making each movie, like, feel bigger and more like it, they never really got that. I mean, as much as I love First Contact and as much as I praised it, even it still kind of feels casual. Like, there's not really any yeah. sense that the stakes are all that much higher at the end of the movie. There's not really a sense yeah. that anything has really changed. Even with Nemesis, everything has changed, but they still leave it open that they might go on. Like, Data having his brain put in the other robot, which is a transparent nod to Spock on the Genesis planet. That's another thing. These movies really tried to chase the past Star Trek movies pretty hard. Like, Insurrection, they openly said they wanted to do a, their version of The Voyage Home. Yeah. Uh, it's not hard to see that First Contact is their attempt at doing uh, The Wrath of Khan, except they actually succeeded. I mean, they really did chase the past glory pretty badly on this on these movies, didn't they? Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is just... this. this is, I also think part of the problem, too, is that the cast wasn't really all that theatrical. and Like, they were they were TV actors, is what it comes down to. And I know that that line has blurred dramatically in the last few years, but they really were TV level. You know, they played... Because I feel like the actors all played everything with the same bigness of TV. You know, that same in-your-face, no-subtlety TV acting. Um, as I said, Jonathan Frakes was really never somebody that they should have put that much strength in. And it's no wonder. Riker almost always feels like he's off to one side. I think the most yeah. dramatic development that he gets in the movies is he shaves his beard at one point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's it. That's all that happens in these. That's all the development that we get. It's not, they're not satisfying. Um, I will also throw this out. Part of the problem, too, is that they did have a deep well of characters that they only tapped one time for the movies. Yeah, if they if they really wanted, like... I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it would have been, like, a lighter movie if they had done this. But yeah, like you suggested, just have Q Where was our as Q the villain movie? in the movie. Where was our Q movie? Or not even Q as the villain. Q as a character. I mean, if you... Oh, were... yeah, that would have been great. I mean, because Q often wasn't necessarily a villain. He was sort of... <sighs> He's an interesting character. I will point out, IDW did an arc with Q going back to the uh, reboot crew. Q being uh, the, a figure in a uh, story with the reboot uh, crew that is excellent. Oh, that would have been neat. And that was awesome. That was, it's a really good story. It even brings the reboot, the reboot, the reboot crew, boy, that's hard to say, uh, into contact with uh, Cisco and uh, Deep Space Nine. Nice. That's a really cool story. That's a really cool story. I recommend it. Uh, if you can get your... <sighs> when in doubt, get your hands on something published by IDW. They also did a Star Trek Green Lantern crossover that is incredible. Oh, I love IDW. These just, these don't, I, I think the problem that these movies have, and I'm going to throw this out too, is that they feel like franchise movies from an earlier era. They're, they're films that are content to like dress up in the pot, in the familiar garb that we're familiar with and, you know, go through the motions, but they don't, they don't feel big enough in the modern era. Movies changed dramatically between 1994 and 2002. I don't even think the first X-Men movie feels big enough anymore. 
I'm kind of amazed by how little it feels, actually. Yeah. And that's because they, it was little. They were working on a dramatically reduced budget. Uh, by the way, Patrick Stewart, uh, by the way, Brian Singer actually has a quick uh, cameo in uh, Nemesis. Uh, he's a huge Trekkie. Oh, really? Yeah, so Patrick Stewart got him in. I don't know. I will say this. I still think First Contact is great, and I think Nemesis is maybe a little underrated, even though I didn't have very much nice to say about it. I feel like at least it does try to be something different, and it does feel like they tried to play on a movie scope. I don't know. I just didn't really, I just didn't really enjoy this very much. I just didn't enjoy these films very much, and I'm, I hate that because I still do like the Next Generation, but I don't know. I think you nailed it. It's casual watching, and movies aren't casual watching. No, <laughs> they're very active. They're very active, and this, and God, these movies are talky. You nailed it when you said that. This is a lot of these movies are a lot of talking in corridor movies when you get right down to it. So, yeah, that's that's my thoughts on the next generation movies. Wish that uh, good show deserved better on the big screen. But watch First Contact. First Contact's awesome. Yeah, yeah, do watch that. So, yep. So we yeah we will see you all next time. Who knows what we'll be discussing, and. Uh, yeah, things are still kind of up in the air. But, we, but yeah, it's we, there will be a next time. There will be a next time. So, I'm Austin Shin. I'm Albert Wilson. Trek on. Mr. Wolf, do you know Gilbert and Sullivan? No, sir. I have not had a chance to meet all the new crew members since I have been back. They're composers, Wolf. From the 19th century. Data was rehearsing a production of HMS Pinafore just before he left. A British tar is a soaring soul, as free as a mountain bird. His energetic fist should be ready to resist a dictatorial word. Sing, Wolf, sing. His nose should pant. And his lips should curl. His cheeks should flame. And his brow should furl. His bosom should heave. And his heart should glow. And, and his, his fist be ever ready for a knockdown blow. His nose should pant. And his lips should curl. His cheeks should flame. And his brow should furl. His bosom should heave. And his heart should glow. And his fist be ever ready for a knockdown blow.